Heavenly Father, please help us to trust in your word as we see for ourselves what you are saying. Lord, you are God. We are not. Your ways are higher than our ways. So please help us to remember this when we read your word and feel uncomfortable. Help us remind us, you are God. We are not. Give us attentive hearts and minds to engage with what we're about to hear. And please help me to be faithful and clear in preaching your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do you know if you can trust someone? If you're meeting your friend for lunch, can you trust she'll be on time? When you shop online, can you trust that the seller will mail you the goods? And when you vote for a politician, how do you know that you can trust him or her? How do you know you can trust someone? Well, I don't know what you you spoke about just now, but I think we all know the answer, isn't it? You look at their track record. Is this person a promise keeper or a promise breaker? Has she kept his, her other promises before or not? And so, you know, if your friend is always late for lunch, 12 o'clock, you usually like add like 15 minutes to it, right? Then you arrive there uh, slightly late as well. If you're buying stuff online, what do you do? You see if the seller has more positive feedback than negative ones. And when voters decide whether Malcolm Turnbull should still be the Prime Minister of Australia, people will ask, did he keep his promises? You see, the point I'm trying to make is you can trust someone who is consistent in keeping promises. You can trust someone who is consistent in keeping promises. I bring this up today because that's what we're asking of God Can we trust God to keep his promise to save us through Jesus Christ? So we've been taking a break from Romans for the past three weeks, and some of us are new here, so I think it's really important we recap where Romans 9 is in the the larger book. Right, so remember, Paul starts his letter to Romans, to the Roman Christians, with the key verse in chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. Let me read it for us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So for the past eight chapters of Romans, it's all about how the gospel reveals God's righteousness and power to save people. You remember what we learned, the amazing gospel Only the righteous can live forever with God. The wicked will face God's wrath. But then the question Paul answers is, how do you become righteous? Well, it's not through works. It's not through your moral performance because nobody is righteous enough. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus alone. We need Jesus to be righteous for us. So friends, if you're not a Christian today, Here's the summary of Christianity. If and only if you trust in Jesus, God declares us legally righteous. 
So you're no longer God's enemy, you're God's family. That's the gospel. The gospel is this. God has saved us from his judgment through Jesus to be his people. But there's one problem. There's one problem that in Paul's time made them doubt God's power. You see, earlier Uncle Bunching uh, helpfully, very epically read uh, Genesis. Thank you, Uncle Bunching. Um, and in the passage in Genesis, God promised blessings to Abraham and his descendants, right? Israel. Israel is meant to be blessed by the blessed people of God. See, the problem in Paul's time was that many of Paul's fellow Jews, the people of Israel, rejected the gospel. The church, the early church, was made up mainly of Gentiles, non-Jews. Jews were a small minority. Right? Look with me at point one on your outline. Paul's grief at Israel's unbelief. Look at what verse 2 says. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Can you sense that Paul is really upset? Why? Because so many of his fellow Jews, the people of Israel, they don't believe in Jesus. They won't enjoy the blessings that God has. Verse 4 to 5 tells us that Israel had all the spiritual advantages to be God's people, right? They, had, they were adopted by God. They had the covenants. They had the law of Moses. They had promises given to their forefathers. And yet, they rejected Jesus. I guess the modern-day equivalent is kind of like people who grow up in church, right? Learned all the Bible stories in Sunday school, but grow up to reject Jesus. The Jews overwhelmingly rejected Jesus in Paul's time. So here's the question many people had. How come so many Jews don't believe in Jesus? Has God broken his promise to Israel? Has God broken his word to Israel? Do you see what's going on here? Paul's defending God's integrity. God's integrity is at stake. If God broke his promise to Israel to bless them, then how can we as Christians trust God to keep his promise to us? Can we trust God to keep his promise? Well, Paul wants to say the answer is yes. We can trust God to keep his promise because God has been consistent in keeping his promises. You see, the problem is not with God. The problem is with Israel. They've misunderstood who God's people really are. So in Romans 9, Paul is answering the question, has God broken his word to his people? Look at verse 6. No, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? Because not all who are descended from Israel really belong to Israel. Not everyone who's born from Abraham's line are really God's true people. So how do you become God's people? It's not by birth, it's not by works, it's entirely by God's choice. 
This brings me to point two, the doctrine of election. How do you become God's people? It's not by birth. Look at me at, at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this takes a bit of Old Testament background, uh, and that's why Uncle Bunching read uh, Genesis. You see, the Jews, they thought that, you know, as long as I'm descended from Abraham, I will receive all the blessings that God gave Abraham, right? Which uh, Uncle Bunching read in Genesis chapter 22. But Paul is saying, no, it's not by birth that you receive God's promises. Look at uh, the next slide. You see, you only have to look at one generation after Abraham to see that this is not true. It's not by birth that you get God's promises. So remember in Genesis, Abraham had two sons through two women. Through Hagar, he, he had Ishmael. And through Sarah, he had Isaac. And in Genesis, if you read the whole book, God's promises to bless his descendants didn't go to Ishmael, it went to Isaac. So already in the first generation, just because you were born from Abraham, it didn't mean that you receive God's promises. That's the big mistake the Jews thought. That's what verse 8 means. Look at verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh, Ishmael, who are children of God, but the children of the promise, Isaac, are counted as offspring. You're not God's people by birth. So just because you are born into a Christian family, just because you grew up in church, that doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible says it's not by birth that makes you God's people. So the next question that Paul is trying to answer is this. On what basis does God make someone a child of promise? Before Paul tells you the answer, he tells you what it is not. You are not a child of God's promise by your works. Look at me at point 2b. And in verse 10 to 13, Paul goes one generation down uh, the family tree. Next slide. You see, Abraham's son Isaac, if you remember, uh, he married Rebekah, and he had twin sons, right? Twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau is older, Jacob is uh, younger, and both are born from Abraham's line. Now, if you know your Jewish history, usually it's the oldest son that gets all the blessings, right? But Genesis tells us it's not Esau that gets the benefits of God's promises. It's Jacob. Well, why? Look at me at verse 11. Paul explains. Though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebekah was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, you see, Paul is very clear. The reason why Jacob received God's blessings that come with his promises is not because of anything he did. If you read Genesis, you know that Jacob is scum, right? He's this lying scumbag. He's really, really 
he's terrible, he's a terrible person. So it's definitely not because of his morality. God chooses Jacob over Esau before they were born. Let's be clear, God's promise is never through works. How do you become God's people? God chooses. That God's purpose of election might continue. Now, election, it just means choice, right? And Paul repeats it in verse 11. Jacob was chosen not because of works, but because of God who calls. Friends, we need to get this clear. The reason why you are God's people is entirely by God's choice alone. See, to be God's people means you need to be saved from your sins. And Paul is saying very clearly, salvation is not by birth, it's not by works. Salvation is entirely by God's choice alone. Nothing in us contributes to God choosing us. That's what we mean by grace. It's unearned favor. It's completely God's free choice. And that's what the doctrine of election is telling us today. God freely chooses who to save. Now, earlier I told you that 10 years ago, this chapter changed my view of God and uh, my understanding of grace. Uh, so, a bit of background. I grew up in church. Um, you know, all the, the gospel was taught to me, and uh, yeah, I was told very early on at a young age that yeah, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved from your sins, and you enjoy God in heaven forever. But growing up, I always thought that it was my choice that made me a Christian. So I grew up thinking, you know, God reaches out His hand to save me, but I had to grab onto it to be saved. But can you see, Romans 9 is saying something very different. It's clearly saying that God pulls me out of the fires of hell on His own choice. The reason I'm saved is not because I grabbed God's hand. The reason I'm saved is because God pulled me out by Himself entirely. Can you see that's what Romans 9 is saying? I struggled with Romans 9 for a really long time because I thought it was unfair. I mean, isn't, isn't salvation based on my will to choose Him? But you know, after a while, I, after two years of thinking about it, I realized why I found the doctrine of election so offensive. It's because God's election crushes our idols of self-control and autonomy. We're told in this world, right, that the ultimate, to, ultimate thing to, to strive for is freedom. And freedom means having a choice. And so if, if something impinges on this ability to choose, we get really offended. We want to be in control of our life. I couldn't stand the idea that God was in ultimate control. But can you see, if you really get the doctrine of election, you understand what God's grace means. Grace is unearned 
favor. And for grace to be grace, you must contribute nothing to your salvation. God chose me, not because I chose him. God chose me even before Gabriel Tan was born, before I had done nothing good or bad. Now, if you're hearing about God's election for the first time and uh, you feel a bit uncomfortable, I understand why. But can I just plead with you, please keep listening. Don't let your heart judge God's truth. Let God's truth guide your heart. So keep listening and keep asking questions, okay? See, Paul understands. Paul understands. It's human to think, isn't this unfair? If God chooses the same son and not others, even before they were born, where is the fairness? Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unfair? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the first time I read verse 14, the first thing I thought was, okay, how is this answering the question, right? I mean, it's just, is God unfair? No. God has mercy on who he has mercy. Isn't that just restating the point? Well, then I understood what Paul is really saying. See, Paul is quoting God himself speaking to Moses. And God is saying, I am God, you are not. God has the absolute right to have mercy on whoever he has mercy on. That's what it means to be God. God is God and he has total freedom to choose who he wants. Mercy is not a right, it's a gift. So, you know, in some countries, um, they have the death penalty, right? So Singapore is one of them. And in, in countries with the death penalty, usually uh, the president or the prime minister uh, can pardon people who are on death row. And this act of mercy is completely at the president's discretion. He's not obliged to pardon everyone. So, can you imagine if a death row prisoner that was pardoned went up to the president and said, Hey, president, why didn't you show mercy to the hundred other people that were on death row? It's not fair. Here's the question. Does he have the right to do that? Mercy is not a right. It's a gift. Friends, we were all on death row. We're all sinful people and we deserve to be on death row for our sins. Everyone here deserves God's wrath. And if you are a Christian, the fact that God chose you is entirely by His grace, His undeserved love. So God is under no obligation to extend this grace to everyone. But in the gospel, God does something better than just pardon us. He gives us complete freedom in Jesus Christ. So not only does God declare us innocent, He makes us His children. Friends, having been recipients of God's grace, how can we say it's not fair? 
Look at verse 16 with me. Paul is really clear. God's mercy depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is God and we are not. And just as he has the right to show mercy to whoever he wants, God also has the right to harden the hearts of whoever he wants. Look at verse 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Friends, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. How do you become God's people? It's not by birth. It's not by works. It's entirely by God's sovereign choice. That's what the doctrine of election means. You're saved only because God chose you first. Well, this brings us to point three of our uh, sermon today. The purpose of election. To reveal the riches of God's mercy. Now, if, you're, if you have a, a beating heart, I think some of you, most of you would feel really uncomfortable with this, right? Look at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists His will? If God controls everything, then why does He still blame us? Didn't God do this? How does Paul answer? Look at verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does Moldet say to its Moldet? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clear clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Verse 20 is saying this. God is God. He's got total freedom. He's got the right to do what he wants because he is God. That's what makes God God. I think Paul is pointing out something that we forget. Paul is reminding us that God is the creator and we are his creatures. And therefore, God owns us. God is God and we are not. We easily think we know better than God, right? You know, like the, the movie Bruce Almighty? We think that you know, if we were put in God's shoes, we'd do a better job than God. But Paul's reminding us, God is God. We are not. We have no right to tell him how to do his job. Essentially, in verse 21, Paul is reminding us these three things. God is sovereign. God made you. Be quiet. God is God and we are not. We need to know who's in charge. You know, for those of us that are parents, um, all of us have one-liners, right, that, uh, that to remind our children who's in charge. Okay? And even if you're not a parent, your parents would have done this to you, correct? Okay, so... Um, for, for me and April, when Noah and Sophie, they're not listening to me, uh, April and I, we try to reason with them. Uh, but at some point, you know, we, we just want them to obey. So this is our one-liner. We tell Noah and Sophie, Noah, Sophie, 
you are not the boss. <laughs> End of conversation. And, you know, when I was growing up, um, I, when I, I got a bit more eloquent, I learned to talk back to my mom a bit. And her, every parent has a different one-liner. Like her one-liner uh, to remind me that she was in charge was my full name. Okay? So she would cross her arms and she would say, Gabriel Tan Zhen Yang. That's a sign that I knew that, okay, I'm in trouble, you're in charge. Okay, so, so I went on uh, Google and Reddit uh, to Google some of the most amusing um, parenting one-liners and, and you know, sentence, sentences that parents use to put their kids in their place. And here are my favorites. Stop it or I'll sell you to the rubbish collector. Okay. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it and replace you with another one. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying you should use these phrases. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, in, in a parent-child relationship, we, we get it, right? Children need to know their place. Parents are in charge and, and children don't fully understand this world. So, so at some point, what the parent says goes. And we accept that. Well, how much more in a relationship between a creator and his creatures? You see, God says to us, I'm God, your creator. I made you. And I choose to have mercy on you. He doesn't own us an explanation, friends, because God is God. We are not. He has every right to have mercy on whom he has mercy on. And yet, Paul does tell us the purpose of God's election. Look at verse 21. Why does God choose some and not others? Well, it's to make known the riches of his mercy. Look at verse 21. Has the porter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, the reason why God chooses some and not others is to show the people he's chosen the riches of his glorious mercy. Without darkness, you won't appreciate light. Without cold, you won't appreciate heat. And without God's wrath, you won't appreciate the riches of God's mercy. God is God, we are not. He's chosen to save us and to reveal the riches of His mercy. This brings us to our last point. The consistency of God's election. Remember the, the question that started this whole chapter. Has the word of God failed? How come the majority of Christians are Gentiles, not Jews? Aren't the Jews the chosen, chosen people of God? Well, Paul is showing the word of God has not failed. 
God has kept His promises. In fact, Jews, even in your Old Testament, God has already said He would choose many Gentiles and a remnant of Jews. Look at Paul. He quotes Hosea in verse 25. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Paul always said that Gentiles are going to be part of his people. And look at Paul quoting Isaiah in uh, verse 25. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Gentiles were always included in God's chosen people, and only a remnant of Israel will be included in God's chosen people. So here's the big point for today. Romans 9 is telling us God is consistent in keeping His promises. He's always saved people by His merciful choice. So can you trust God to keep His promise, to save us from His righteous judgment? Can you trust God that if you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven from your sins and you will enjoy heaven with Him forever? The answer is a big yes. But if God is sovereign in choosing who to save, then what role does human responsibility play? We'll find out next week. But for today, Romans 9 is telling us that God is consistent in keeping His promise. He's always saved His people by His merciful choice. So what does this mean for us? Two things. Trust God's promises. Romans 9 is telling us God's word did not fail Israel. He's consistent in how He saves His merciful choice. And because God is consistent in keeping His promises, you can trust He will continue to keep them. Trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Not your birth, not your works. Now, I know some of us here are uh, not Christian. You've been coming along and trying to find out more. Some of us may be growing up in church right now, but maybe you're here because your parents brought you Uh, And this is you. If you're not a Christian, uh, I just want to speak to you for a short while. Maybe you're thinking, okay, Gabe, that's really great. God chooses who to save, but I'm not Christian. Does that mean God didn't choose me? I just want you to know it's true. God chooses who to save. But the means by which God saves people is through hearing the gospel. And so, it could be that God has chosen you. I mean, you're here right today hearing this talk, right? So that's a sign. That's a sign. How do you know if God has chosen you, if you're a non-Christian? Well, if you trust in Jesus to save you for your sins. So please, if you're not a believer, if you're still figuring things out, today's a good day. Will you trust God's promise that if you believe in Jesus, you're no longer His enemy, you are family. God loves you 
and He wants to forgive you. Trust in Jesus today. Will you trust Jesus to forgive you? And for, for those of us that are Christians, that's why, even though God chooses who to save, the wrong response is to say, well, let's not evangelize. God's going to choose who He chooses, right? The right response is to go crazy with evangelism. It's precisely because we don't know who God has chosen, that's why we should go out there and share the gospel as much as possible. Can you see, the doctrine of election actually liberates our evangelism because it takes the pressure off you. The reason why people accept or dismiss the gospel is not because of your eloquence or your, how well you explain the gospel. It's entirely God's choice. And so your responsibility is not to convert people. That's God's job. Your responsibility is to just share the gospel about Jesus with others and let God do the rest. Trust God's promises. The second and the final application for today, rejoice in God's mercy. I want to speak to those of us that are struggling with the doctrine of election. Maybe you were like me growing up. You think you're saved because you chose God. I hope you can see that Romans 9 is very clear. It's because God chose you. If you're thinking, how is election fair? Please, please come and speak to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. It's really important to understand grace. Friends, if you're struggling with election, we need to keep remembering God is God and we are not. If God were to be fair, all of us would go to hell. Remember, He's righteous to judge us because we're all sinners who deserve His wrath. So the question is not, why doesn't God save everyone? The question is, why does God save anyone? If we understand we're so sinful and God is so merciful, then God's election is very good news because on our own, we will not choose God. That's why God has to choose us. God's election is great news. For those of us that are Christian, rejoice in God's mercy, not your works. If you've been Christian for a while, you know, I think the danger is that we start to rely on our spiritual performance a bit uh, rather than in Jesus alone. So, have you prayed? Have you read your Bible? Are you going to Bible study? Have you shared the gospel of your friends? Are you living out what Jesus and the apostles say? And those are all good things. But the danger is we start to look at them as assurance of our righteousness rather than Jesus alone. It's dangerous. If you rely on your works, it will lead you to one of two paths. It will either lead you to pride when you're doing well, or despair when you can't meet up to God's standards. And so, here's the antidote. 
Rejoice in God's mercy, not your works. If you remember, you're accepted, not because of human will, but only because of God who has mercy. If you remember that you're, you're, God is mercy, merciful to you, not because you go to church or you were born into a Christian family, not because you said a sinner's prayer, not because you're a youth leader, not because you're a respectable person. If you remember, God is merciful to you entirely because He chose you before you were born. It will liberate you in your assurance of salvation. Our only response to this passage is to let God be God. God is God and we are not. So friends, will you join me? Come to God's feet and praise Him for His mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that it's nothing in us that makes us your people. It's all you, not us. And thank you that we can be unashamed of your gospel and trust you will keep your promise because you are consistent in how you call your people. Thank you so much for your mercy and grace to undeserving sinners like us. May your mercy liberate us to tell more about Jesus. Father, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.